you know, in, in working in school, sometimes you're the only therapist there or the, the only bilingual therapist there. And schools tend to throw a lot on your plate. So it's really important to be like a self-advocate and, and just remind administrators or anyone that's trying to give you extra work, yeah. you know, the importance of your, your compliance with that child's education plan. Erica Fernandez, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me this morning. I'm excited to be here. Of course, of course, me, me too. So before we we get into the the specifics of what we spoke about offline that we're going to get into today, I was interested in how did you even get into speech therapy? Like what drew you to speech language pathology before you even considered becoming a speech therapist? It actually began in high school. So I, when I was in high school, I took a debate class. But in that class, the teacher spoke about voice disorders and how people had to go to therapy to get their voice back. And that intrigued me. So I didn't know what I wanted to study in college. But that one little lesson on voice disorders made me think, oh, maybe that's something I want to do. <laughs> So I researched, you know, what, who does that? You know, I didn't even know who, what, what title um, that profession has. So that kind of propelled me into speech language pathology. That's interesting. So you went into the debate class, like kind of uh, just like a general interest, trying to see who's into it and whoever was running the meeting was talking about speech disorders and and that was like the the first instinct you had to to go towards speech therapy yes was yeah. do you remember a particular type of disorder they were talking about or was it just disorders in general that kind of stuck with you it was about losing your voice so mm -hmm. i think with the larynx and not, and and just completely having um dysphonia um, not having a voice anymore and trying to get it back. And that intrigued me. And it's funny because that is more medical and I'm not a medical. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a medical um, specialist. My entire um, career, I've been in the pediatric side of, of school language pathology. So mm -hmm. it's funny how I had that interest, but I just went in another direction once I was in the field. Yeah, it's funny. I, I went to one debate class when I was in high school and I I remember I got freaked out about it like when they started talking about all the rules and stuff and how long you have to speak which is ironic because I do podcasting now but back when I was 13 14 years old I remember the guy you know one of the teachers talking about it and just like all the different aspects of debate and like how technical it is and I, re I remember just like leaving the room I made an excuse. I said, I have to go to another meeting for like photo club or something. When in reality, I was just like, screw this. Like, I'm I'm not doing debate. But it it just reminded me of that memory of like how how involved debating is. So it's funny that that uh, like indirectly brought you to speech therapy. Yes. And then my um, experience as a classroom teacher, because I, I did go into teaching first, <laughs> Um, only because I couldn't get into a graduate program for speech right after completing my bachelor's degree. Um, so 
teaching in the classroom, I saw the need, the, the need for bilingual specialists as, as more than, you know, just speech therapy, but definitely in the bilingual population. So I was like, okay, yes, I'm meant to do this. <laughs> yeah. It, is it, uh, it's Spanish that you speak English and Spanish? Yes, I'm fluent in Spanish and English. Um, I am a first generation Latina child of immigrant parents. My parents are from the Dominican Republic and I am the uh, first person in my family to go to college. I am the wow. only person in my Amazing. family to, uh, thank you, have a master's degree. Well, two master's degree because I have my education master's. Um, and that, that love of education came from my mom. So I have to credit her for that. Um, but in that, you know, you, I think that parents who aren't, don't have higher level education, don't know the path to obtaining certificates and titles and licenses. So once, you know, I, I decided I'm going to go to college and I'm going to study this, I had no idea um, the journey to get to my current license and my current title and to be in this profession. No one explains it to you. Yeah. So that, that journey is, is it can be, it's not always linear. For me, it wasn't linear, right? Um, I, I went into teaching and then I, and then I became a speech therapist. So it's, it's um, different for everyone, right? But for any bilingual therapist that's new into the field, thinking that, you know, you may, you may not always have that confidence of knowing what you're doing. It's okay, because not all of us do. <laughs> but we're yeah. still great at what we do. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you talk about that journey a little bit the process from when you were a teacher and then you realized you wanted to get into speech therapy kind of the different steps that you had to take along the way because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to the podcast that may be in a similar position where they're in a another job now maybe it's completely unrelated maybe they're doing something like you like working with children and they want to get into speech therapy but they're not sure how could you kind of talk about how you took those first steps towards becoming a speech pathologist? Yes, I, leaving high school, I knew I wanted to study speech. So I did obtain my bachelor's degree in communication disorders. However, once you finish your bachelor's in the state of New York, you need a master's in order to, in, in speech language pathology in order to have a job. When mm. I was studying um, many years ago, <laughs> when I was studying, the Department of Education um, would hire you as a speech teacher and you would have five years to obtain your master's degree, right? So I could still get a job and, and work under the supervision of a licensed clinical professional. Yeah. But um, the year I graduated, they changed that. And they said, no, you need a master's. We won't hire you with just a bachelor's. So now I'm here applying to all the grad schools that I can. And I didn't get in. So that was a little heartbreaking. So you say, and my mm. mom, the immigrant mom says, okay, you have a four-year degree. Now it's time for a real job. <laughs> Go out into yeah. the workforce and get a, a job with benefits. So she yeah. actually suggested to me, oh, you took all these language courses. Maybe you can be a teacher, which I was not wanting to do, but I applied to the um, teaching fellows program and they actually paid for my master's degree in, uh, in elementary education so that I could work for the Department of Education for five years. Mm. So I ended up staying seven years in the Bronx in uh, teaching second grade bilingual class, my, wow. little, my little baby. 
And, but during that time in those seven, you know, once I finished that master's, it took me um, between two and three years, I was applying to speech programs because I knew that I still wanted to do speech. Mm. And in working in the classroom with the bilingual population, I saw the need for therapy for children who didn't have words in their own language, couldn't communicate, um, you know, and it turned into reading difficulty. And so there was just a need for extra support. So I knew that I wanted to continue. So I applied, I reapplied, and third time's a charm. I got into our grad program on my third try. (laughs) So um, once I was in that program, I continued teaching. I want to say the first year of grad school, I continued. And then the second year, I had to leave because I was going to do my um, externships, which are full time. So that led me into that. Yeah, that, that's great that you were able to have that job as a bilingual teacher while you were applying to grad school and gathering credentials, because I'm sure that experience feeds into what you're doing now, teaching the bilingual kids and also doing bilingual value evaluations, bilingual speech therapy, things like that. Absolutely. And and the, I, I tell you, you know, when I when I come in, to contact with new therapists, I tell them, you know, experience is going to give you your level of confidence in this field. You don't come mm. out of grad school knowing it all. You come out of grad school with a knowledge base, but it's really your clinical expertise. It comes through the experiences you have with your clients and, your, and yeah. the setting you're in. Um, I didn't have such a positive um, experience in my adult externship. While I was in the graduate program, you have to do a pediatric externship and an adult externship. So my adult externship, I went in there and I told the supervisor, I do not have experience with adults. My experience is with children. I see myself working with children in the future, Mm. but hopefully, you know, this experience will change my mind. I'm willing to learn. And that therapist did not take me under her wing. She did not. She didn't. She didn't like it. <laughs> no, she did not um, make it a positive experience for me, and I left there with even less. Um, do you th- do you think it was because work with do, you, do you think it was because you told her that you wanted to work with children that she was just like disregarded you right away, or what? What do you think it was that she didn't take you under her wing? I think that she expected a certain level of expertise. I was, I mm. think, in my last semester of my graduate program. And I think that she had these expectations of the graduate program preparing you up to a certain point, um, you know, through your classes. But theology is very different from hands-on. So I, yeah. I, 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 take, I take that into consideration now. If I have a graduate student working with me, you know, they're going to only know so much. But it's my job to then show them the clinical setting, like how to, how things really work or how yeah. how you can uh, go about certain situations, which she wasn't willing to teach me. Um, so I think that also helped me stay in the pediatric field. <laughs> it kind of yeah. kind of shifted my focus to stay in the to stay in working with children only, um, which isn't a bad thing. You know, I love my little kitties. I love working with uh, the children that I've worked with up to this point. Well, I was going to say maybe it was a blessing in disguise because me personally, I wouldn't want to work 
with someone or work under someone that wasn't willing to at least give me a shot if I'm willing to put in the work to try to learn the adaptations in the clinical setting if I'm coming in with theory as a grad student like at least give me a chance to to see what I can do rather than just casting me aside right away so maybe you dodged a bullet there Maybe. Um, yeah. I, I say this story because I think that your confidence level as a clinician comes yeah. from your expectations and your beliefs. Like I believed, even though she didn't make me feel um, worthy, I believed that I was accepted into the graduate program because of my experience. Um, I already had an undergrad in communication disorders. I already had um, experience with bilingual children um, in the classroom. So to me, I'm like, I'm the unicorn, you know, show me more to now get these kiddos to, to develop their language even more. And yeah. my background of immigrant parents um, provides me the confidence of knowing a diverse linguistic background, which not all monolingual therapists have. And not all monolingual therapists can communicate or relate to immigrant families that may be dealing with a child who is not speaking at three years old, or you know there are other de developmental processes that are occurring that the parents may not be familiar with because of their cultural background. Yeah, I wanted to to ask you about that because we'll definitely get into the, the confidence as a, a therapist, but I, like confidence as a bilingual speaker, do you notice a difference in kids that learn two languages growing up, like from really young, they become fluent in, let's say, English and Spanish? Rather, like when you compare them to kids who just know English, do you notice any difference in behavior or confidence? Like, because I'm curious, because I only knew English growing up and now I'm like, you know, barely passable Spanish. I'm actually in Panama right now, uh, working remotely down here for a couple months. Um, so my, my Spanish is getting slowly better. Uh, still, you know, it's still embarrassing, but uh, at least better than before. But I'm just curious, like for kids who know it from a really young age, do you, do you see anything confidence wise or behavioral wise? Um, I think that language is just overall developmental, right? So it's mm -hmm. really like I was only exposed to Spanish through my family up until I think um, maybe a 3K program, like three years old, you go mm -hmm. into like a, a little school. And that school setting was English only. So my mom actually, I have no recollection of learning English. I didn't get ESL classes. Um, my mom actually told me, you went into the school and you started little by little saying words in English and little by little that became sentences. So by the time I was four, I was fully bilingual. Um, wow. So I, I don't, and the kids that I see, I don't see a big difference in learning the languages. I mean, it could be a little slower to learning a second language. You yourself are saying that you're having, you know, it's a slow process for you to learn Spanish. Um, and I also think that uh, the immersion of it uh, makes a big difference, right? So if we take a child who's only immersed in Spanish and now they're coming into kindergarten in an English environment, um, you can't expect that child in just the kindergarten year to now be fluent in English as well. It takes, mm -hmm. I think research says five to seven years for a child to be fully uh, fluent in both languages. Yeah, that, learning that's, a second language. That, that's something that I've learned over the past few years because I've been taking Spanish classes since high school, and then I took a couple semesters in college. But my Spanish 
got a lot better, like significantly better. When I took a trip down to Cuba, we went as a, a baseball team down to Cuba when I was in college for 10 days. And everyone, you know, we were working with or like other baseball players we would meet on the, the Cuban national teams all spoke Spanish and like not a ton of English down there. So it forced us to speak it. So just in those 10 days, I felt like that was almost a year of taking Spanish classes. And then, you know, I go back to America, I'm taking Spanish, you know, classes uh, over video and on apps, but like, there's nothing that compares to just being in a place where you have to speak Spanish. I feel like that just accelerates all the stuff that's going on in your brain, like the connections and things like that. Yes. And, and that's an amazing experience you had. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it was great. I, I, I highly recommend Cuba, especially now that it's more open with the U.S. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Many um, of um, the parents that I, that I, that, you know, come to me and say, oh, you know, the doctor told me not to speak Spanish. You know, they're only having um, school in English and that that might be um, the reason for their, you know, if they're not picking up academics a, a certain way, at a certain speed as their peers. And I say to parents, absolutely not. Uh, having a second language is not a delay and it's not going to make a child be delayed. So continue, continue Spanish because um, it's only going to be good for them in the future. Yeah, I mean, if anything, learning two languages expedites your learning and gives you a, a bigger capacity to to remember things or relate to things because there's so many just like with my basic understanding of Spanish there's so many things that are not directly translatable to English like it kind of means one thing but in when you're speaking in Spanish it takes on a new meaning that's like and there's a close translation to English but like just like differences in uh, like in English when you say I like something and in Spanish, you say, like, it's pleasing to me. It's just like a di like your mind kind of operates in a different setting when you're speaking a different language. And I feel like going back and forth with those would only be a benefit. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of building confidence as a, a therapist, what, what are some of the habits or tools, resources that you came across in your early days as a therapist, maybe even in grad school, things that helped you build confidence in that new career and those new settings around, you know, brand new people? Well, definitely knowing the language development norms mm -hmm. and so that you can speak to parents when they're, when they are concerned about certain things. Um, I love the articulation parents who are concerned about certain sounds at three years old. And I'm like, you know, that sound doesn't come in until they're five or six. So it's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Give them time to develop that. Um, so knowing the norms and knowing the, as a bilingual therapist, knowing um, if something is a language difference or if something is a disorder um, early, like not, not lately, not within recent years, but earlier on. I would have teachers saying, oh, you know, they're not pronouncing things the right way, but it's because the child had a Spanish-influenced um, vocabulary. So instead of, like, mm. say, the SH sound, they would say the CH sound, right? So for shoes, it'd be, I put on my shoes. 
but the teacher yes. was, was so was so focused on, you know, the child not pronouncing this correctly. And I'm like, you know, it's okay. Yeah. It's not a delay. They don't need speech for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I guess just like the the differences in the, the, the pronunciation I so it can seem like it's a delay, but in reality it's it's you just have to learn how it sounds in that language, like the different rules and things like that. They can be perceived yes. as delays, but they, they aren't yes. actually delays. Correct. Yes. Yes. And and being, you know, the the sometimes as a new bilingual therapist, you don't think that you know um important facts, right? But you are so accustomed to things that you don't understand that they are important to the family you're serving. So for um for like backgrounds, right? Like of the cultural backgrounds, like this family has never is eats only a certain type of foods. And now I'm exposing this child to testing and I'm showing them, you know, different foods, like American foods on the test and the child is not mm. responding. And I would know, okay, the child is not responding because they are not familiar with that. Whereas a monolingual therapist might say, oh, they don't know this. They, you know, they don't have this vocabulary, but it's yeah. because it's totally new to them. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like they've never seen it before. Whatever it is, I, I, what are American foods? I'm curious. Like, is it just the classic cheeseburger, pizza, you know, whatever? Yeah, I, I can say like pie. Like they don't, we don't have a word for pie in Spanish. I don't, I don't think. <laughs> it's more yeah. like cake, a, cu a cupcake. We don't, we don't have a, a, a one word that translates to cupcake. <laughs> yeah, th then uh, that's uh, that's a pretty good incentive to learn more words in English, like having to eat the foods to to learn the words. You tell a kid like you get to eat everything now because you don't know what pizza is. So, you know, spend spend a week going through all these different American foods. Um, in terms of in terms of boundaries for for burnout, we spoke a little bit offline about that, too. W what are some what are some ways that you can avoid burnout, like setting boundaries, whether it's with yourself or parents, uh, number of cases, things like that? What, what are some ways that you've been able to set better boundaries to avoid that feeling of burnout? Well, I think that we've seen a rise in burnout in the past few years due to the aftermath of the pandemic. I personally have totally changed my schedule and how I schedule clients. Um, I used to travel to three boroughs. I used to um, see parents. I have a, a, a soft spot in my heart for a working mom. So mm. if a mom wanted to meet me um, because I'm the person, I'm the evaluator for her child and she's working until 6 p.m. and says, oh, I really want you to, I really want to be there, but I'm not home until 7 p.m. I would go out of my way and go to their home at 7 p.m. Or mm. if they worked Monday through Friday and had no availability and said, you know, could you really please come on a Saturday or Sunday? Again, I would go out of my way and schedule that. But now I'm like, no, these I like my appointments are during school hours. Once your child is in school, um, these are the hours you're going to be able to speak to any professional. So it's starting now. Like I will see you during these hours. And if we can't come to an agreement, I'm not the therapist for you. And that's okay. Um, so before I was really reaching, right. I was really reaching and going out of my way, but it took a toll on me, um, and my family. 
So I have two kids of my own. So I said, you know, no more, <laughs> no more. Yeah. I um, actually uh, was listening to uh, the Jay Shetty podcast where he says yeah. that um, uh, studies show that 57% of people who are burnt out report um, producing lower quality work, right? So what is the point of putting on all these cases on yourself and then what you're producing with the child isn't, isn't working or isn't effective? Mm. Um, I think that it's a good chance. It's a good way to like, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling burnt out, a good thing is to pause and really write down what is working and focus on what is working. Um, so for me right now, we're, what is working is staying in one borough. <laughs> I stay in one borough. Yeah. I don't travel to three. <laughs> that That's um, a good way. That's, that's a good way to frame it too. the, if, if you, burnout you're putting the the quantity over the quality and then, then the quality can start to dip then you can frame it to the parents as you know i'm taking a break so i can do better work for you if i show up on saturday i'm not going to be fully present i'm going to have other things on my mind like maybe i can't dedicate as much time to your child as i need to rather than if i saw them you know when i'm more on like in those work hours so you can you you can frame it to the parent as like i'm i'm doing this uh for me but also for you this isn't like a completely selfish motivation absolutely and i think that they appreciate that honesty um you know and in working in school sometimes you're the only therapist there or the the only bilingual therapist there and schools tend to throw a lot on your plate so it's really important to be like a self-advocate and and just remind administrators or anyone that's trying to give you extra work, um, yeah. you know, the importance of your your compliance with that child's education plan mm. and how you have to be there to do your sessions and not extra things that they want they want you to do. Like I was in a school district that was using me a lot for translation. And mm. as much as I appreciated you know, that they wanted my help and I was able to communicate with parents, it would take me out of my work sessions with my children. So I had to like set up like, okay, you want me to be on these, in these meetings, but I also have to see my children. So which one is it going to be? Yeah. <laughs> I can't do both. I can't do both. <laughs> so really setting up the boundary of what you can do, how much you can do of it. Um, and also, um, if you're feeling burnout, it could also be because you have a lack of growth. You're not learning new skills. You feel stuck. Um, a quote I have from Tony Robbins says that progress is the foundational pillar to human happiness. So mm. you can't think that you're going to be happy-go-lucky in your workplace if you hit a plateau in your clinical skills and your knowledge base and you, you're not learning something. Um, so I always say, reach out to others, reach out to other professionals and maybe on a team. And if you're in, I'm talking school-based, if you're in a school-based environment, talk to other professionals um, about how you can help the same child you're working on, talk to their teachers, also go on your own conferences. Um, we're, we're going into the networking now of, of speech. Yeah. <laughs> of speech yeah. I love, that... I love conferences. Conferences help so much. Yeah. I just want to I just want to make a quick comment on what you said about the the Tony Robbins quote the the happiness or progress being the the pillar of happiness. I've 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 definitely felt that 
with, you know, whether it's work or podcasting that when I stop trying to get better at what I'm doing, or maybe I'm not really acquiring skills or I'm paying attention to things that don't really matter, I start to dedicate that energy towards other things that are less useful, like, you know, jealousy or, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I don't really pay attention to gossip, but like gossip comes to mind or just like things that are a waste of energy that like the energy doesn't go away for me. It just when I'm not putting it into building my own skills, it just it's still there, but it goes into things that are not as useful, if that makes sense. Like I, I, it's not like you get rid of it if you stop making progress. You just that energy offshoots and you're like looking for ways to get rid of it. I think that for therapists, they can easily go into complaining mode, right? We complain, mm. complain, complain, but what are we doing to better ourselves? What are we doing to better our situation and, and you know, work with families in, in a way that may not be working right now? How can I help this family? How can I help this child um, or these children in this setting um, meet their goals, right? So I have to educate myself. I have to take online courses. I have to go to conferences. There is a great, for anyone who's listening, there is a great um, annual conference. It is called the Bilingual Symposium. And they always have wonderful speakers. And it's always, I get to travel because it's always in a different location. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I really recommend it. And it offers, I think, 10 CEUs or 11 CEUs at once, which is great for continuing education um, credits. <laughs> yeah. What, so throwing that in there. Yeah. So I'm curious about the the complaints. Are are there any wh- whether it's it, it could have been something that you thought of as a complaint or maybe another therapist? Is there any you know justifiable complaint or maybe entertaining funny complaints like things that have just stuck with you over the years that are through lines to speech therapy? Things that keep popping up as complaints in the field, like anything that comes to mind. I think the biggest complaint is they're not is that there isn't enough time. There isn't enough time because we want to fit in so much. Um, mm. So really, but that really goes back to scheduling your time appropriately and effectively. You can't do everything at once, even though you want to. <laughs> your brain yeah. wants to, but you physically can't. <laughs> yeah, I've I've had a uh, a few therapists on the podcast who've spoken about how they didn't realize how much time they spent in a car until the pandemic hit. And then they're taking all these cases at home and, you know, they're doing, uh, you know, maybe four or five cases in a few hours, whereas uh, before everything shut down, it's like you do a case, then maybe you drive an hour, then you do a case, you drive, and it's like an entire day takes, uh, you know, yeah. you, you can get uh, uh, what used to be an entire day full of cases now in, in a couple hours. So I'm sure that also makes a big, uh, makes a big difference to the teletherapy. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in terms of, or, or I actually wanted to to ask you, uh, going back to the confidence, because I also remember a few therapists talking about how one of the things they wish they knew earlier on was focusing more time on how they communicate with parents, because a lot of the roadblocks that they were running into wasn't actually because of the kid. It was because 
the parents weren't implementing the the practices or the skills that they were doing during the sessions and it took them a while to realize it or maybe they were intimidated to talk to the parents in some way is there any thing that you've learned speaking to parents that has helped you with communication and and presenting things where maybe you've noticed a, a roadblock or uh miscommunication lack of understanding on the the parents part I always start with parents with what is your concern and why do you feel your need, your child needs speech or if your child is already in speech okay what are the things that you would like your you would like to see your child doing at home um so that I can get a basis for a, a foundation for where is this child in the parent eyes mm. and then I say okay during therapy we're working on this and give them models um, for them to use. I think the during the teletherapy era and the in during the pandemic, um, that gave me an eye opening to see what parents were doing. And a lot of parents, um, for the nonverbal speaking babies, they just give in to whatever the child is pointing to. So a lot of yeah. it is parent education and showing them, um, you know, pause, wait, give them a second, say a word, have them try to ha- see if they repeat your word before just giving into their commands, their demands, right? The child is always in demand <laughs> in the home. <laughs> so the parent yeah. follows their lead and it's more about teaching them um, in therapy. I don't just give them the toy that they want that they're pointing to at that moment. Um, so it's really teaching them um, see, that, and that's, educating them. That's how hard setting boundaries is. You can, it's hard to say no even to a baby. <laughs> it's funny it's funny because saying the word no is is the same in almost every single language but it's one of the hardest words to say to just tell someone no yeah or wait yeah (laughs) wait for what yeah like (laughs) like what when so like let's let's say that example pops up where a parent is asking you maybe even borderline begging for a session on the weekend and you've decided to set a boundary with that time that week either that week or maybe it's like an ongoing thing what are some of the ways that you've said no in the past that have seemed effective because it's one thing to just like say no like oh just say no it's fine but then when you actually have to communicate it over email or over the phone you can't just be like, no, and then like j- just hang up the phone. Yeah. What What are some of the different ways that you've you've learned to say no that have worked for you? Well, with my schedule, I've definitely started the conversation with I'm available on you know these days, these hours. In your, mm. I'm in your area during this time. And if they say to me, oh, I work during that time, and I say, okay, is there any way you can accommodate your schedule to be present? Otherwise, I can see the child with whoever the child is with at that time, right? If they're attending a school, if they're um, with a babysitter in a daycare, and they say, they come back and they say, no, I really want to be present. And I said, okay, again, I just repeat my schedule. I say, these are the times I'm available. I'm not able to come, you know, past 3 p.m. or on the weekends at this time. So that's that's really how I I, uh, word it to them. I like that you present your world to them first and you say, okay, if you're going to step into my world, here's, here's how you can do it. So then you don't, it, it, it sounds like doing it that way eliminates a lot of 
miscommunication or going back and forth on the back end when you just say everything up front? Yes, and they, they appreciate that. You know, sometimes it doesn't work out where I'm not the therapist for them and that's okay. And then um, sometimes I get calls like, oh, I, I, I we spoke last week and we weren't able to set a schedule, but I really want to meet you. So they come back. They come yeah. back around sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What's what's some of your best advice for networking and, and making connections as a speech language pathologist? I think that now I I have been in the field 11 years. So 11 years ago, it was a very lonely world. <laughs> I think that now there are so many ways to connect with professionals. And I think also the mindset has changed of a community and of therapists wanting to help established therapists wanting to help newer therapists. Mm. Um, so I think that that has shifted in a positive way. Um, I Social media is a great way, uh, LinkedIn, um, and like I said, conferences, online conferences, yeah. and um, just even meeting, like I visit a lot of schools, so even just meeting, going into the schools, I meet the therapists that work there, and I have a relationship with them, so I'm not, um, I'm not one to not speak to others about a child, like if I go in there to see a child if for an evaluation, but they're in the school, I want to know who's, who's working with this child. What are you working on? How do you see this child? Because I'm only seeing a snapshot of that child in, you know, the half hour, hour I'm with that child where this person mm. is working on their goals long-term. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned the, the Jay Shetty podcast. Are there any speech specific podcasts or, or resources that you listen to consistently that have helped you or any, it could be in general too, just for mindset stuff scheduling setting boundaries the slp nerdcast i just found uh, slp that one nerdcast nerdcast it is very good all right that one it down. Is very good <laughs> for all those slp nerds out there yes <laughs> i'll check it i'll check it out yeah the listening to podcasts it's such a great a great way to take in information, but also do other things at the same time, like doing laundry, doing dishes in the morning, going for a walk. Even driving, because us therapists drive yeah. a lot too. So in Game the car. changer. <laughs> yes. Game changer. And for, for new therapists also, um, you know, once you obtain your, your clinical fellowship, know that that clinical supervisor is going to be a mentor to you. And you know, just ask yourself, I know that you're, you're excited about this new experience, you're just out of graduate school, but really ask yourself, what kind of setting do I want to be in? Like, what kind of therapist do I want to learn from? Um, you know, that is going to make all the difference in, in your experience as a new therapist. So mm -hmm. do you want to work in pediatrics do you, versus an adult? Do you want to work when you're in pediatrics? Do you want to work in early intervention versus school age? Um, all of those questions you should ask yourself so that you can find a person um, that can show you the ropes mm. in that mm. setting. Yeah. So going off of that, so having a mentor sounds like a perk of, of the therapy world. Like you basically get a built-in mentor as a clinical fellow. W what are some of the other best perks of being a speech pathologist? Helping children talk, <laughs> helping the nonverbal babies 
have, find their voice and use their voice. And also in the school age, um, uh, age group, helping students exercise their voice in, in a manner that all can understand. A lot of, um, sometimes it's, it can be a fluency problem where they're just not comfortable in the space they're in, but in a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. session with you, they can get so far. Um, sometimes it's uh, not being able to to read at the at the same rate as their peers, but in a one-to-one -one session with you, they are really making progress, knowing their phonemic awareness and and blending their sounds together. So I think that just seeing that progress in in I speak for children because that's the population I work with. Just seeing that change in them, it it's it's so impactful for you. I think that a lot of therapists come into speech therapy wanting to help others. Right? Mm. It's part of our career. Um, it's part of our our identity. Um, so seeing any progress that you see in a client you're working with is so fulfilled. You you feel fulfilled. That is definitely a perk. <laughs> Do so. The ages of kids that you work with, what what are what would you say is like the average? The average, um, I see a lot of preschoolers, so mm -hmm. three and a half to four and a half, and I see so, a lot of younger grade school age, so kindergarten to second grade, so five to seven. Okay, so here for me, I'm thinking about some of the the teachers that I've had around that age. I, I think I also went to speech therapy, like maybe for a year or two when I was around preschool age. But I like I don't have a great memory of it from that time. Like I, I just don't really remember a lot of things like a few things stand out here and there. Do you like is that sad that like a lot of kids that you work with won't necessarily have a great memory of how they got to speak better, even though you know, like, obviously, you're doing it. Like, do, do you think about that a lot? Or is it more just kind of in the moment, it is what it is. And then, you know, people grow up. I don't I don't think that I don't think of it as a sad thing that they don't remember me. <laughs> I think of it as uh, in the time that I worked with you, I was able to, you know, get you from point A to point B. So I'm happy with that progress. Mm. Do you have people reach out when they get older, like anyone who stays in touch maybe in middle I, school I, high school things like that i have not <laughs> i have not only because i've serviced so many areas yeah it's hard for people to keep track of me <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure uh you're, you're definitely gonna you know have a few in the future with the social media you know dms things like that you know i'm sure people will reach out very, it's very e easy easier world. much e much easier to find people yeah Someone yes. will send someone. Someone will send you. Someone will send you a TikTok dance with like the new using like some of the words that you taught them. <laughs> what's uh, what's some advice for grad students that you think could be helpful? Like if someone's going through the grad student process now, what's something that you wish you knew about the grad school process that you know maybe you had to to find out on your own or it was a surprise. Um, definitely not to give up. It can be, um, a difficult program in, in the sense of, you know, you, you're exposed to maybe sciences and, and other, other 
other other areas that you weren't expecting, right? So mm. um, for me, it was the a lot of the hearing disorders and the and the obviously the adult language, the adult part was difficult. Um, so moments of wanting to give up, just don't, don't. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so keep going. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Tony Robbins and and Jay Shetty. So I know you know what a TED Talk is. Yes, of course. So I wanted to ask you as we end off, if you had to give a TED Talk on any topic, but it couldn't be about your job, so you can't do it on speech therapy. If you had to give a TED Talk tomorrow, what would you give it on? Mental health. Hmm. Any any specific aspect of it or just mental health in general? I think going back to the burnout only because of the mm. aftermath of the pandemic I'm seeing. And, and I'm seeing it in children, too. So, you know, they were isolated for two years and now they're in school. And it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. So I would definitely um, focus on how to... Bur- avoid burnout and how to get pick yourself back up if you've fallen down. Mm. I like that. And you're hitting a good target demographic for a, a YouTube TED Talk with burnout because when I get burnt out, one of the first things I do is just scroll random YouTube videos. I'm like, all right, let's uh, see what pops up today. So um, you yeah. probably get a lot of, a lot of people that are uh, currently burned out with uh with a TED talk. So that's a that's a good topic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica, for for joining me on the podcast. This is it's really been a fun time and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Zach. This was great. Thanks for the chat today. Yeah, of course. We have, you know, parents, we have therapists, some random people that are just interested in speech therapy that listen to the podcast. So I know that what you've said will be valuable and there you know a bunch of things that we spoke about that I'm, I'm i know people will take away from so thank you again thank you so much and it, and to anyone listening that is new know that it is a great field to be in and um once you're in it you'll you will feel grateful to be in it because <laughs> i yes. do i do every day yes we do it for the money no i'm just oh, kidding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, th- thank you so much, Erica. This, this has been this has been really fun. I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.